Good evening, everyone, and welcome to New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Tonight's program, The Battle for New York, Rallying and Rioting, Tammany and Terrorism, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs, and we always want to Thank Mr. Schwartz for his support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. I'd also like to thank all the Chairman's Council members with us tonight for all their great work and support. Let's give them all a hand. The program will last an hour and include a question and answer session. The Q&A will be conducted via written questions on note cards. You should have received a note card and pencil as you were entering the auditorium, but we also will have our staff members circulating through. Just raise your hand if you want a card, and then they will be collecting them a little later in the program. There will also be a formal book signing with our speakers, um, and uh, copies of their books will be in our museum store, which is on the 77th Street side of the building. We're thrilled to welcome Barnett Schechter back to New York Historical Society. An independent historian, Mr. Schechter is the author of several books on American history, including The Devil's Own Work, The Civil War, the Civil War Draft Riots, and The Fight to Reconstruct America. He was an advisor on several exhibitions here, including Lincoln and New York, and is a fellow of the New York Academy of History and a contributor to the Encyclopedia of New York City. We are also so pleased to welcome John Strasbaugh back to New York Historical. Mr. Strasbaugh has been writing about the culture and history of New York City for a quarter of a century. His history of Greenwich Village was selected as one of Kirkus Review's best books of the year. His most recent book, City of Sedition, The History of New York City During the Civil War, has been awarded the Civil War Roundtable's New York's Fletcher Pratt Award for Best Nonfiction Book of 2016, among others. Our moderator for the evening is Richard Brookheiser. Uh, just a note, Harold Holzer regrets he was not able to come tonight, and Richard is, um, is taking his place. A senior editor of the National Review, Mr. Brookheiser is the author of 11 books, including James Madison, Alexander Hamilton American, and Founding Father Rediscovering George Washington. In 2008, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President George W. Bush in a White House ceremony. So before we begin, I'd just like to ask if you have a cell phone or anything and a beeper that you please turn it off for the duration of the program. And now please join me in welcoming our guests. Thank you. I know it's a long walk, so the applause, that's <laughs> fine. Well, look, thank you all for coming. I, I am not Harold Holzer, unfortunately. Um, he knows the Civil War personally. He's a good friend of the Civil War. <laughs> but he couldn't, couldn't be with us tonight, so I will try to uh, sub in for him. Uh, we are very lucky to have these two authors. I have used their books myself many times. I blurb John's book. Uh, I expect we'll have a very informative, great time tonight. But uh, I want to start off as devil's advocate. 
New York has, is full of Civil War monuments. They all commemorate the Union side. The greatest public statue in this city is on Fifth Avenue and 59th Street. It is General Sherman. He is marching through Georgia, being led by victory. There's an almost equally fine statue in Madison Square Park of Admiral Farragut. He's like sailing into Mobile Bay. Uh, Lincoln kicked off his first presidential campaign at Cooper Union, and then when he was murdered, he was mourned by Brooklyn's greatest poet, Walt Whitman. And on a personal note, I was married in the Union League Club <laughs> in their lovely library. So what's the problem? I mean, this, this, is the union, this is the unified city of the Union, right? Well, that's what was so shocking about the behavior of New Yorkers uh, before and, and during the outbreak of the war, was that here was a city within the limits of the so-called loyal states, uh, which had, was actually a hotbed of, as John puts it, it was a city of sedition, yeah. the title of your book. Um, and it's a complex history. Uh, you know, you can go back to the revolution and think about New York's geography as its destiny. John Adams said, New York is the nexus of the northern and southern colonies. So physically, it's at the mm -hmm. center of the Atlantic seaboard. Uh, it's a great uh, entrepot. Uh, for shipping, for commerce. And so um, culturally, it becomes torn between its ties to the South and its, its loyalty to the yeah, North. Yeah, and I think cotton had a lot to do with that. I go on about this at some length in my book. Um, the, the size of the international cotton trade, uh, the explosion of it in the first half of the 1800s, um, New York at, at its peak, New York was 40% uh, of what New York was shipping out was one commodity, cotton. That's mm. enormous. And then tobacco and then sugar. So New York had long ties to the South. Uh, William Cullen Bryant said that New York was more of a Southern city than a Northern city. And also banking, I would imagine. Banking, merchandising. They were selling everything. The, the spread of the cotton plantations and therefore the spread of slavery through the South was funded by New York banks, uh, supplied by New York merchants. Um, New York shipping magnets shipped a lot of the product of that. Um, so they, it was a very long and very close relationship. A lot of people in New York, not just the bankers and the shipping magnets, but anybody working on the docks, anybody working in the hotels where 100,000 Southerners a year would come visit New York. Um, there were 800,000 people in New York and 100,000 Southerners uh, in mm -hmm. the summer of 1860. That's a lot of folks. So uh, anybody working in a restaurant, a hotel, a gambling house had um, reasons to um, feel pro-South, um, pro-slavery, and anti-abolition. So they're here for, for business and for tourism. All, yes, all these yes, both, yeah. So uh, what was the uh, political complexion of the city? It's partisan. Well, I mean, one makeup. indicator was the fact that the, the lame duck mayor, Fernando Wood, uh, <laughs> in his message to the, uh, the city council, the common council, um, in the secession winter, was that New York City should take it upon itself to secede from the union. Mm -hmm. uh, he said, you know, we've, we've got good economic relationships with all the states, um, we can become a kind of duty-free port like mm -hmm. Hamburg. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we'll break off and eventually the, 
you know, the, the old Northwest will break off too, and we'll all sort of trade amongst mm-hmm. ourselves. And I think it was, it was going to be a, the Republic of Triinsula. That no, was no, one of the three, the three islands. You know, <laughs> it's an idea I think we might want to dust off and reconsider. <laughs> okay, but uh, how seriously was he taken? He was not at the time. Um, roundly, except for in his brother's newspaper. Benjamin Wood, his brother, was a newspaper editor, and he thought it was a great idea, but everybody else, Horace Greeley and everybody else, um, lambasted it. For it sounds a little like Norman Mailer and Jimmy Breslin's I, Norman uh, probably, he, you know, Norman knew his New York history, so mm-hmm. he brought it back up, and as I say, I think we might want to look at it again now. Well, you know, Lincoln brushed it off with his usual folksy humor. He said, well, I'm not too worried about the doorstep of the nation setting up housekeeping on its own account. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. But there is a serious side to it, which is you know, that, that words have consequences. Mm-hmm. And the fact is that you know, he, Wood was marginalized for what he said, uh, especially you know, when the war really broke out. Uh, and of course, he jumped on the bandwagon, and mm-hmm. raised his own regiment, and so on. But during that critical secession winter, uh, what New York said had impact on mm-hmm. the South. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's, there's some... There's a kind of bombshell question here. To what degree were New York merchants who were calling for peaceful secession, let the South Mm -hmm. go, we'll work this out, to what degree were they, and and Horace Greeley, Mm -hmm. uh, this very flip-flop editor of the New York Tribune, to what degree did they encourage the South? And Mm -hmm. might the South, uh, you know, if their bluff had been called, maybe not have seceded without this kind of encouragement uh, from, from these fearful New York merchants? Yeah. Now, um, Lincoln carries the state twice, but how well does he do in New York? <laughs> Terribly. <laughs> now, uh, as, as Tammany already exists, right? Tammany Hall. So New York was largely a Democrat city, a Tammany Hall city. The Democrats were, in those days, as we know, the conservatives, and the very new Republican Party were the what we would call the liberal party now. Um, he, uh, New Yorkers voted against him in 1860. New Yorkers and Brooklynites, the two still being separate entities, uh, by a margin of two to one in 1860 and again in 1864. So um, although Horace Greeley and, and uh, Seward and a few other very influential Republicans in New York um, made big strides to get him into the White House and then to keep him into the White House, the majority of New Yorkers never voted for him in the first of, place or the second Of place. New York City. New York City. The, the state New York State went for him, different. but then New York, he won New York State in 1864 by 1%. So mm-hmm. um, that's when he was running against George McClellan, who was a great hero to an awful lot of people at the time. There, there's an interesting sort of backstory to this, too. If we go back to 1856, uh, the first time Republicans ran a presidential mm-hmm. candidate, John Fremont, who lost, obviously, but... The Republicans gained control in New York State of the legislature and the governor's mansion. Um, And so it's interesting to look at the rhetoric of someone like Fernando Wood um, when he's he's talking about New York seceding from the Union. He's also setting up a kind of dynamic where there's there's a kind of microcosm. New York reflects the same kind of tensions that are going on nationally, state, upstate, downstate. He's saying, you know, I'm in favor of uh, municipal rights. And mm-hmm. he's, you know, he's standing up for the city against uh, the upstate Republicans. Mm-hmm. And so there's this kind of, he's drawing an analogy almost between, uh, you know, national and local politics. Um, and so, you know, what we see as we go through the war 
and you know, this will play in later when we're talking about the violence that erupts in New York. Um, some of those tensions are sparked by Republicans uh, upstate who are making laws for the city, right. uh, mm -hmm. putting in a new uh, metropolitan police department and mm -hmm. a, you know, a board that controls it, um, you know, putting in Sabbath laws that close uh, you know, the saloons on, on Sunday, mm -hmm. all these irritants uh, that, that will yeah. make the, yeah. the, uh, the Tammany loyalists, the right. immigrants. And that doesn't happen up. anymore, though. <laughs> no, no. The mayor and Albany no. are on the same <laughs> exactly. page. So, so um, Fort Sumter falls. What is the immediate reaction in New York City to that? Um, people rush That's out. a very polarizing event. It was. And people, for, uh, for all that they had uh, argued against it and feared it coming and said that they would not fight for the union, um, they instantly went out and signed up um, in droves. And New Yorkers of all types um, and, and of all classes. I think... I, you know, I'm going to take, I, I do take a slightly cynical view of that because um, I'm a New Yorker. Um, uh, I, I, people thought that it was going to be a, a three-month war. Um, we were going to march down south. We were going to kick some butt. We were going to come back with laurels uh, around our bayonets. Um, so you were signing up for a summer adventure, basically. In the spring of 1861, you were signing up. You were going to be back by September. Um, for working New Yorkers, it was a paycheck. Um, there had been a lot of unemployment in New York. Um, the idea of getting paid not well, but regularly, um, was uh, exciting to them and, and, and a big incitement, I think, to, to sign up. Once they start seeing battle, uh, seeing the elephant, as it was called, at Antietam and First Bull Run and, and, and all those, um, that volunteerism goes through the floor and mm -hmm. they stop signing up, which leads to having, you know, just now what, the draft. Now, what's the ethnic makeup of the city? Um, it, it's more than, I, I, I Well, if you look at the city in 1860, uh, there are about 800,000 people total. And the largest uh, ethnic component are the Irish mm -hmm. and Irish Americans who make up about a quarter of that, mm -hmm. 200,000. Um, and then now, the Germans, how many Germans? I'm not sure exactly yeah, the figure either. for the Germans, but, not but they're probably, many, right? you know, yeah, they're yeah. probably the second largest. Mm -hmm. And then um, free African Americans are about one and a half percent, like yeah. 12,500 mm -hmm. people, mm -hmm. which is a bit of a dip from its high in the 1840s of 16,000. So um, I think it's important when you're looking at this response to Fort Sumter to also talk about the motivations of the Irish who filled a lot of these regiments mm -hmm. and created their own uh, brigades. Michael Corcoran's Irish Legion, uh, Thomas Francis Mars, mm -hmm. Irish Brigade. Um, there's a whole uh, kind of story there where um, you know, the British are perceived, the British, obviously the you know, eternal enemies of the Irish are perceived as sympathizing with the South mm -hmm. because they need their Which their they cotton, were. Right, because they need mm -hmm. their cotton for their mills, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so um, the, the, the Irish feel that they want to participate to, to protect this, the Union, you know, the United States is this great young democracy. It's and it's tested. not Britain. It's their refuge right. and it's not Britain and Britain doesn't like them. So exactly. we, my friend we of my like own. the Union. Right. The enemy okay. of my, okay. so also many of them were Fenians. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so this was sort of on the job training for them to join up to fight in the Civil War so that they would have some um, experience when they went back and kicked the British out of power. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the war um, 
first bull run happens, and then a lot of nothing happens for a long while, and people slowly begin to realize this is going to be a long war. And as we all know, Lincoln goes through many generals um, before he finds some good ones. When does uh, when is the draft instituted? Well, the, the draft really comes in in, in two stages. Um, there's a militia draft in 18, summer of 62, and then in March of 63, there's the first federal conscription. Of well, this is the first one we've ever had. Right. I mean, if you think about the American Revolution, we had a draft, but it was at the state level. Mm -hmm. And so the governors were in control. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, and of course, that fit with you know, American ideology, revolutionary mm -hmm. ideology, that you don't have a standing army controlled by a central power. Um, and so this is a huge watershed right. uh, in, in March of 63, right. that suddenly there's this bureaucracy in Washington. In fact, they created a whole new bureaucracy, yeah. the Provost Marshal General Bureau. Um, and suddenly this bureaucracy can reach into every household and tap men directly into a national army. Mm -hmm. So that in itself uh, was a cause of outrage, but the fact that you could also pay $300 or hire a substitute and get out of the draft was uh, an extreme area. Now, why was that written into the law? Well, from the government point of view, they were doing everyone a favor. They were capping the price of a substitute. Mm -hmm. If you didn't have the $300, the $300 clause, what they called a commutation clause, then people could bid on substitutes in a kind of open market, mm -hmm. and the rich could pay you know, $1,800 or whatever mm -hmm. they, they could afford. Um, so $300 is how well off do you have to be to have $300 to well, pay for if you're, a substitute? If you're working well. on a dock or yeah. in a factory, you're maybe making a dollar a day. Right. So you're looking at almost a year's salary. It's prohibitive for an individual, uh, working class person, but what people did was they pooled their money, they created draft insurance with their factory buddies, and if one of them got drafted, they would pay for it. Um, and eventually what happened was that cities and towns would uh, float bonds, yeah. as we'll see with Tammany and, and Tweed uh, in New York, and collectively the city would, uh, would hire substitutes and, and pay off the money for, for poor men who couldn't afford it. Mm -hmm. I, uh, Monroe, James Monroe wanted a draft in the War of 1812, but Congress wouldn't uh, pass it, so, so this is a new thing. Now, how um, were there any uh, New York units uh, uh, during the war that um, distinguished themselves in ways that made them noteworthy here, that were celebrated here? Um, that became local heroes for... Sure, sure. For Corcoran's, Thomas Corcoran and the Irish were hugely um, famous and fettered here um, and did well. They were the, one of the only Union units at the first Battle of Bull Run who actually stood their ground. Mm -hmm. um, Corcoran was uh, captured, spent a long time in, in prison, and he came back to... They shut the city down to have a parade for him when they brought him back. Mm -hmm. So... Um, uh, he was a big deal. Uh, and uh, uh, um, Philip Carney, um, the, the one-armed devil, um, was you know, almost impossibly dashing. Uh, he was like a fictional character, and, and they, they loved Philip Carney. He didn't last very long because he, um, he was outrageously brave and kept going out in front of his men and went too far out in front of his men and got killed. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, he was very... 
famous and and and, and the, the the seventh regiment. Yes, the seventh. Um, Although the seventh didn't do much right. of anything, in fact, it did nothing during the war. The seventh <laughs> regiment marched around and looked great, and everybody loved them. Um, but they I, now officers from the when they mustered out of the seventh went on to do things on the battlefield. But the seventh itself never it, it saw battle. Um, I would. I think we should also mention the the 69th the Fighting mm -hmm. Irish uh, mm -hmm. Regiment of Volunteers. Again, these were Irish nationalists who had started the unit and. Um, they really, you know, suspected that the army was using them as cannon fodder because they mm -hmm. were put in the front of the worst battles. They suffered horrendous casualties. Um, well, they were a good unit, though. That's what they do with them, right? Right. right. It's, it's On the other also hand, what you do with Irishmen in those days, though. There um, was a lot of prejudice. You, yeah. you know, you I mean, took them out in Fredericksburg, front. December 62. I mean, uh, everybody was cannon fodder. At yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very good well, point. that was the point. It was a, right. it was a yeah. doomed... A doomed right. charge, right? <laughs> well, it was like five doomed charges. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a terrible uh, yeah. thing. Yeah. So, but, but that's the perception, right? Okay. So, but but that's that's important to get out there because we're going to now. I want to get to the draft riot and you know people's our memory of it is you know Irish draft rioters, but there were also these very gallant um, Irish units fighting at the same time. So we shouldn't like paint with too broad an ethnic brush here. So, so what, what brings tensions to the point at which people take to the streets over this? I, I think that um, the, when they finally start doing the draft, that's the last straw for, and it's not just for the Irish, it's for white working men, which was most of the working men um, in New York City um, by that point, by, by the summer of 1863. Um, they, they, um, their wages had stayed steady, or real wages had stayed steady or gone down, but inflation, wartime inflation, had doubled the cost of everything, the price of everything. Um, they were not happy about the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, it shifted the point of the war from, uh, they had been told that they were going to fight originally to preserve the Union. Now they were fighting to preserve the Union and free the slaves, which was something very few of them had any interest in fighting and dying for. Um, and then the draft comes along, and uh, if they don't have a year's wages set aside to buy their substitute, they're, they're, they're going to go. And I think that was the final spark that, that, that caused it. So it, it's a draft, right? But it, Barnett, is it in your book? It's in somebody's book, about, I think it's yours, where the, the, you could really look at it more as a citywide workers' revolt than, than a draft, right? The, dra the draft was the immediate cause, but grievances had been building up in this class for several years by then. And did they think of um, the Republicans who were in the city as the elite? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, were they uh, right and targeted about that? them in the riding. You know, obviously they were targeting any black person they could find. Well, black males at first, they were curiously not targeting black females for the first day or two, and then they kind of started to. Um, but uh, yeah, they were looking for, um, well, Mayor Opt Opdyke, who was a, a Republican. They went to his house and they were going to burn it down. Um, they were looking for um, Edwin Booth. Because um, Edwin was sort of a celebrity spokesman for Lincoln and for the war effort. Um, and they would have probably done some nasty things to him. Um, so yeah, uh, Repu uh, Republicans were 
the to to many of the writers the small elite minority who had gotten them into this mess and and they were very unhappy about it right and unfortunately the people they thought had gotten them into the mess too were the, the free african americans in yes. the city they were Mm-hmm. The innocent cause of all these troubles, as one, one person put it, a British visitor put it. Uh, and so what happened was, th- as the riots broke out, they started as a political rally. People marched uptown. They, they targeted the draft office at 46th Street and 3rd mm-hmm. Avenue, uh, smashed into it, burned it to the ground. Um, but as the day went on, after they had you know, raided armories and tried to gather weapons and attack the mayor's house and all the sort of obvious political targets, the whole thing degenerated into a racial pogrom. And wh- where did blacks live then? Well, what's interesting is that you really didn't have what you might call a black ghetto or mm-hmm. black ghettos at the time. Um, partly because of poverty, uh, blacks and whites lived together in some of the worst slums on earth, down in you know, the Five Points mm-hmm. neighborhood, um, down near the Civic Center today. Uh, and so that made blacks defenseless in the sense that they couldn't rally together and -hmm. and fight back. Uh, And so blacks were hunted down wherever they lived. Um, You know, an example is down where the uh, Brooklyn Bridge is today. You know, there's a huge access ramp to the Brooklyn Bridge. That ramp has wiped out a neighborhood that contained, uh, you know, black uh, mutual aid societies, churches, uh, rooming houses for for seamen uh, that were underground railroad stops mm-hmm. uh, and distribution points for abolitionist literature. So these became targets of the rioters. And you know, some of these were the people who ran those boarding houses were sort of middle class, you know, affluent blacks uh, who lost everything. And they targeted an or- orphanage also. That, that yeah, the, the colored orphanage. Uh, right, Fifth Avenue and, and 43rd Street. Mm-hmm. And there were about 230 children. Uh, it was a, actually a biracial effort. It had been started by Quaker women, white Quaker women, in the 1830s. Uh, Then in the 1840s, they hired a black doctor uh, as the attending physician. This was James McCune Smith, Mm -hmm. the first accredited black physician in America, um, who had to be educated in Scotland because of racism at home. Uh, And so it was a, a joint effort that was an uplift to black children, bringing them out of the slums, um, and so became a point of resentment for poor whites, um, so that blacks were somehow getting preferential treatment. And so it became an object of, of rage, and they, they burned it to the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, interesting, you know, the point you were making before, when we look at any ethnic group in this story, there's always a complicated picture. Um, the young men who eventually rescued the children, once they came out in the street, were young Irish streetcar drivers who knew the neighborhood and said, come with us, mm-hmm. we'll take you to the safety mm-hmm. of the police precinct. Um, so th- there are lots of stories mm-hmm. like that. So the riot is how many days? Starts Monday morning. Um, it, it goes, the, the first troops start coming back. There were no troops in town because mm-hmm. they were all, Gettysburg was the week right. before, so they had all been shifted south. Um, so they're trying to get back and to, to help out. They, the first ones show up Wednesday night. Thursday, they're kind of marching up the avenues with guns and howitzers blazing. And by Friday morning, it's it's pretty much mm-hmm. over. Yeah, I, I was always struck by that detail: howitzers yeah. going up Third Avenue. Isn't I mean, this is this is like we have seen riots in our lifetime, but this is this is a whole quantum different. Still, the deadliest in American history. Now, what um, 
I, I have seen wildly divergent figures about how many people may have been killed. What's your best estimate? I would say around 500. Mm -hmm. Seems reasonable if you read the anecdotal mm -hmm. accounts of soldiers and people in the streets. And probably most of those 500 were the rioters themselves. Because mm -hmm. as you yeah. point out, you, know, you had platoons of soldiers firing live rounds into crowds and clearing entire streets using uh, artillery with anti-personnel canister, you know, shot that would explode and be much more effective against like the crowd. Like a huge shot. Gun. Yeah, instead yeah. of a cannonball. That's, right, right. It will knock down a wall, but it won't kill many people. Um, and, you know, some of the, the estimates were outlandish. You know, people said 1,200 killed, mm -hmm. you know, but there was a lot of political sort of maneuvering and propaganda mm -hmm. going on. Mm -hmm. The actual coroner's death toll was something like 105, yeah, maybe right. 119, depending on, you know, uh, who you counted. But yeah. uh, I, think, I think that was probably low. Walt's brother, Walt, Walt was in Washington by this point, and his brother in Brooklyn wrote him and said, you know, it was many more than 119. Trust mm -hmm. me, Walt. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing that fascinated me was a, a black newspaper, an African-American newspaper, uh, that said 175 blacks were killed alone. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, you know, that involved people who had been driven off of docks into the rivers and drowned. Mm -hmm. um, black men who had been lynched from mm -hmm. lampposts around the city and their bodies were mutilated and set on mm -hmm. fire. Um, it's, it's an incredibly horrific, mm -hmm. horrific event. I mean, if you look at, I mentioned 12,500 people in the free black community, some 40%, about 5,000 of them, men, women, and children were burned out of their homes mm -hmm. and became refugees as a result of this week of, of mob rule. Um, so you oh, where see, did they go? They they went to New Jersey if they could get off get across the Hudson. They got, took ferries over to Brooklyn. Uh, in Brooklyn, there was a, a free uh, black community called Weeksville. Right. Uh, some of the Bed Stuy now. Yeah, some of the mm -hmm. houses have been restored, the Hunterfly Road houses, and there's a historic interpretive center there now. Um, so that was a place where blacks could go, and there were men with black men with shotguns in the woods in a perimeter protecting them. Yeah. But some families moved to New England, wherever they had friends or family. Um, and the black population of New York City continued to decline until about 1870, mm. when, when you started to have, you know, you had the 15th Amendment and black voting rights and so on. So, so what does the city think about all this after you know, order is restored? Well, the Democrats blame it on the Republicans. The Republicans blame it on the Democrats. Um, and uh, one of the impacts is that the city is basically, not officially, but basically put under martial law. Um, many troops come piling in. Um, so that has an impact on people. Um, the Republicans blame the Irish exclu almost exclusively, and the Irish are, are very upset about that. And Bishop Hughes makes a big speech about it. Um, I think it is unfair to say it was an Irish riot. Uh, uh, there were an awful lot of Irish working people, so of course the you know the percentage of the white workers who who rioted and revolted, you know, uh, who were Irish was high, but it wasn't an Irish riot. It was a cop, cop, right. sorry, it was a political yeah, exactly. Yeah, who were fighting? It was an Irish on Irish civil war, and you know, Irish hmm. cops were clubbing. <laughs> You know, clubbing right. Irishmen yeah. in the street, right. cracking their heads with locust wood clubs. So uh, there's a lot of Irish loyalty to the Union as well. You, you mentioned um, 
the troops coming from Gettysburg to restore order. So, and then Gettysburg and Vicksburg happen at the same time, and that looks like, even then, it looked like a turning point, mm -hmm. although the war still had a long time to go. But does that have an effect on the city's mood? I mean, a, a, a sense that, gee, we finally won some for a change. Uh, I, I think, as always with New York, you know, the great metropolis never speaks with one voice. Um, there, there were people, like if you talk to um, Maria Daly, for instance, Judge Daly's wife, who wrote a wonderful um, diary through the whole thing, um, she was convinced that, that the North was never going to be able to beat the South. And, um, and there were plenty of people who thought that. There were other people who thought, great, now we finally won a few. But very soon, it was apparent that this thing was going to drag out for a very long time. Um, uh, if you, there were ways in which if, if you had money in New York, um, the war was a very distant rumble of thunder off somewhere, you know, hundreds of miles away. The nearest battlefield was Gettysburg, and that was 200 miles away. Um, so uh, it was something that if it didn't come into your home, you didn't think about it all that much. And you were making tons of money on it as well. There was an awful lot of war profiteering going on in New York during the yeah, war. Talk, talk a little bit about the gold room. That has always fascinated me. Go. The, um, in the, the room where gold was, was traded in New York. Out down on... Um, on um, uh, yeah, and at, apparently the they Reserve. had better military intelligence than either the, the commanding <laughs> oh. staffs of the Union or the Confederacy because... There was so you know, much right. speculation on gold because the price of gold would go up when things were going in one direction with the war and going down. Um, so there was tremendous amounts of speculation. Um, Lincoln said he wished he could um, assassinate or have execute all the all the speculators in gold <coughs> because it had a big effect on the greenback. You know the that's paper right. money. When you have when you have two sources of money, there's going to be arbitrage. Yeah. And people trying. Yeah. To so um, also um, Confederates apparently were coming up or people representing the Confederacy. <laughs> Buying, <clears throat> buying up huge amounts of gold and, and hoarding it so that the price of gold, you know, to affect the price of gold. To what extent um, were there uh, spies and agents here of the Confederacy? Well, that was the big question. A lot of people thought that the draft riots were part of a concerted Southern military strategy. It, it seemed to them that the it was more than coincidence, but rather conspiracy that uh, the timing of the riots was so close to the Battle of Gettysburg um, and Lee's invasion of the North. And so the, the nightmare scenario was that there were actually uh, <coughs> copperheads, so-called copperheads, these, these snakes in the grass, these traitors in the North, who were uh, informing the South and coordinating uh, Lee's invasion of, of Pennsylvania so that had he succeeded, they had Pickett's charge broken mm -hmm. through Cemetery Ridge, uh, this phalanx of, of Southern Army would have come up, taken Harrisburg, Baltimore, Washington, and then maybe a couple of, you know, ironclads in the in New York <laughs> Harbor, and you, you see the whole thing un unfolding. Um, certainly, the New York Times, uh, Henry Raymond, Horace Greeley's Tribune, you know, said undoubtedly, you know, there are these Knights of the Golden Circle, which was this uh, group that you know envisioned. Southern slavery extending around uh, the epicenter of Havana, you know, and em embracing not only you know the southeast but 
the whole oh, Caribbean. The whole Caribbean right. and part of South America and so on. Um, and that they were working behind the scenes. Um, the evidence, when you sift through it, is very thin. Um, you know, and it seems clear that these draft riots really were a kind of organic, yeah. perfect storm of resentment that had been building, you know, maybe for half a century. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, you know, John, you were saying that uh, this was not so much an Irish riot or, you know, an ethnic riot, but a working man's yeah. rebellion, the largest in, in our history. Um, and if you look at the 50 years leading up to the Civil War, you can see that, that the working man's position is being steadily mm-hmm. downgraded by this sort of revolution in technology, in expanding market, in a market economy. You have uh, what, railroads, paved roads, canals, telegraphs, factory system. All of this is coming in between 1810 and 1860. And what that spells... Well, it's a lot of jobs, but are they lower paying? Exactly. Um, you know, gone is the sort of cottage industry of, you know, people controlling their Don't own Don't have production. artisans anymore. You're, exactly. you're working for right. Exactly. Everybody's a cog in the machine. They have to live near the factory gate to beg for unsteady work. Um, and so, you know, one of the things we see during the riots is the burning of these grain elevators in the Atlantic and Erie basins mm-hmm. over here in Brooklyn. Um, and it was a kind of lashing out against automation. Right, these grain elevators had thrown grain shoveling men yep. out of work yep. uh, by siphoning the grain onto the transatlantic ships. You know, after these canal boats that mm-hmm. come down from the Erie yeah. Canal, and so that I think it kind of encapsulates the whole problem of here's this discriminatory law that sort of uh, taps into this long building uh, mm-hmm. resentment mm-hmm. on the part of. On top of that, waterfront work was what they call casual labor. Um, so you didn't work five days a week most times. You you worked when there was a ship in at the pier where you worked. Mm-hmm. So you might get three days a week work. So that $1 a day you were making, you weren't making $5, $6 that week because everybody worked on Saturday. You might be making $3 that week. So that 300 bucks you know, to buy your way out becomes a lot. And then there was the other factor, and I think it's, I think it's clear that this is why they were targeting the free blacks in New York. They were told over and over and over again um, by the Democratic leaders in the city and by the Democratic newspapers, um, James Gordon Bennett and some of the others, that if those four million enslaved people in the South were freed, they were all going to come up to the North and take away those men's jobs. They were going to take away the white workers' Because jobs. they'd work for less. They would work for less, um, which isn't, I mean, there's a whole reason why that's a ridiculous thing to have, for them to have said, but I think a lot of people did believe that. So they, um, they resented not only abolitionists and Republicans, but blacks. Mm-hmm. Now you have, you told me you had a favorite uh, character. Dan Sickles. Oh, Dan Sickles. Dan has nothing to do with almost any of that. Dan is one of the great scalawags of the 19th century, um, a century that was just packed with scalawags. Um, the competition was intense. It, it, there was a lot of competition for great scalawags, and especially in New York City, of course. Um, Dan gets uh, is a Tammany man, Tammany Hall man. He, as a young man, he's a wastrel and, and uh, a party boy. He, uh, Tammany gets him elected to Congress. He goes down to Congress in the 1850s, um, catches his wife um, with a lover who is uh, the son of, um, his name is Philip Barton Key. Um, so um, uh, he um, shoots him on the street on Lafayette Square. 
comes up here for his trial. It's the biggest murder trial of the 19th century, big scandal. Um, he's acquitted. Um, uh, a lot of people say it's because they used what was then a novel defense, which was the uh, temporary insanity plea. Um, but I don't think that was necessary. His jury was 12 married men. <laughs> so um, Dan goes on to raise his own brigade uh, during the war, uh, and, and he's a general in the war. Um, Dan single-handedly uh, comes within a hair of either winning or losing the Battle of Gettysburg for the Union, depending on which side you're on. Leads his men out in front of the Union line. Um, the other generals are like, oh my God, and they're reforming the line behind him. Um, they're instantly engulfed by the uh, rebels and, and hectic slaughter. Dan is a cannonball, shoots him off his horse, shatters his right leg. Um, they amputate it. Um, in those days, when they amputated your leg on the battlefield, they just threw it out in a pile of other arms and legs, and they dealt with them later. Dan wasn't going to let that happen to his leg. Um, he had it boxed up and sent to the, um, the National Army Museum in a Washington. Sentimental man. Yes, and, and would go to visit it whenever he was in Washington. Um, uh, Mark Twain, who made him, met him later, several years later, said he thought Dan was more fond of the leg he didn't have than the leg he did have. <laughs> so Dan's a great guy, and he goes on and on and on. Dan goes on up, up to 1914, just being an outrageous guy. He, goes, he practically gets us into war with Spain uh, and during the Grant administration. He's an amazing character. Why that movie hasn't been made, I don't know. <laughs> So how does, how does New York react to Appomattox and how does it react to Ford's theater? Let's, let's start with Appomattox. Well, I think New York's response to, to the end of the war is muted in a sense because as we said, it's a city that never voted for Lincoln. And so you know, as, his, as his funeral train passes through the city, it's a question, I think you talk about this yeah. in your book, right? Yeah. It's a question of what was bringing all these people out in the street. If it wasn't, you know, genuine sorrow, it might have been simply a kind of gawking, called rubbernecking. But uh, yeah. um, I think what's, what's important about New York's reaction in the long term is that, you know, we, we talked about uh, the draft rights being in part a response, not to just to the draft, but to the Emancipation Proclamation. And so what I would suggest is that the Emancipation Proclamation is really the opening salvo of what we would call Reconstruction. And the draft riots are perhaps the first battle of that Reconstruction era. And so I think what we're going to see after the war, um, as the war winds down and in the subsequent, say, dozen years, is that the, the Democratic Party, which has really kind of been on the ropes during the war, starts to bounce back. And a lot of that is due to Boss Tweed and mm -hmm. his rise in the, in the 60s. Um, but it's and, also fighting Reconstruction. Right, and so I think the point I wouldn't want to make is simply that the draft riots are just the beginning mm -hmm. of a phenomenon of reactionary racial violence. And they're really of a piece with you know, what we see after the war with the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that we see lynchings in New York City in 1863, and you look at those prints and they look a lot like those photographs from, you know, that go all the way into the 1930s of, of these lynchings in the South. Um, and so there's a story there that I think is very little known that the Democratic Party in New York under Tweed and others really becomes the, the engine 
of the Democratic Party nationally and its mm -hmm. reunification mm -hmm. of the northern and southern wings of the Democratic Party. And in fact, they, they go so far as to win, almost win the White House by 1876. Mm -hmm. um, and then, they, of course, there's a deal that's cut in the disputed election. They, and that's the end of Reconstruction. And that's the end of Reconstruction. Right, the right. deal is you take the, the last troops out of the South and, and you, you know, we'll give you the White House. But I look, I want to push you two on this because <laughs> we know that four presidents have been killed. Um, most of us remember Kennedy being killed. But Lincoln was the first one. This had never happened. I mean, that, ha and also, you know, it's Good Friday. I mean, just mm -hmm. the whole, it's after the moment of victory. So this, surely this had to have been a, an extraordinary psychic event for, the, for much of the country, but including New York, because New York is, is part of the country. I don't think you can, uh, you know, I, it, it would be impossible for us to judge now how uh, all New York came out for the, for the funeral, and it was a grand funeral procession. Um, Walt Whitman obviously was quite moved. Walt had become a huge um, fan of Lincoln's in his time in Washington. Um, but, I, I, you know, there, it has been said that there's an extent to which it was a hippodrome of sorrow. In other words, there was a fair amount of false sentiment there. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, I, once again, I'm going to sound cynical, but you could get New Yorkers out for anything. You could, you could parade a dog down the street and, and a lot of people would come out and watch. So I, I do think there was a certain amount of gawking. Um, this was a city that had always been hostile to him. Um, the majority of people um, had never voted for him weren't very happy, you know, by the end of the war. They were happy that the war was over. Um, they had just thrown a big celebration, but they weren't happy that, as they saw it, he had dragged them into this war, that this hideous war. So yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm sure yeah. there was some grief and some actual shock and some real sorrow. Of course there was, but I think there was also an edge of, you know, New Yorkers being New Yorkers. I mean, on the positive side, certainly the African-American community, which attempted to be part of this funeral parade mm -hmm. and were... They were at first excluded by the city council, um, and then you know, later the War Department intervened, yeah. and, and they were able to have a couple hundred people at the tail end of, of the funeral parade. Certainly, they, they were experiencing genuine yeah. shock yeah. and grief. Mm -hmm. And certainly, I mean, we haven't talked very much about the ultra-loyal New Yorkers, the Union League Club, mm -hmm. you know, the Frederick Law Olmsted, mm -hmm. uh, George Templeton Strong. Right. This was a, a segment of New York society. That uh, Strong's Diary is here. Isn't it? Does New York Historical Society own it? I don't know. Do we? Let's look. Anyway, but now for some questions. Some of my great-grandfather's brothers, born in Ireland, disappeared after being enlisted or drafted into the Union Army. Was this common? It happened a lot. Um, that once they instituted the draft, there was a whole industry of guys who were draft jumpers. Is that what they call them? Yeah. Bounty jumpers. Bounty jumpers. Who, you know, because you got paid a bounty for signing up. So you would sign up, get your bounty, uh, instantly go AWOL, disappear, go to another recruitment office, sign up again. Um, sometimes, you know, using a different name or, or you'd let your mustache grow a little or whatever. And there were guys jumping around doing that um, a, a lot. But also during the war, at, certainly at certain points during the war, there was a lot of uh, um, shrinkage uh, on the line. Uh, right after the, there's a very good book that came out about two years ago, um, 
right after the signing of the Emancipation, or no, not even the signing, the announcement of the Emancipation Proclamation, um, uh, there was a lot of people from the North, not just soldiers, but officers, resigning their commission because they were not going to fight to free the slaves. And they weren't just New Yorkers. Um, they were throughout mm -hmm. the Union. Sure. Okay, next question. Was there any punishment for the riots? Was uh, the short answer tried? is not, there was not much punishment for the riots. <laughs> right. I mean, that part of the problem, of course, the howitzers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Tammany, Tammany appointed the judges, right? Right. The city recorder, the whole power structure was basically under Tammany control. They had no interest in prosecuting their own constituents. Mm -hmm. So they had these kind of show trials where people got a slap on the wrist and, and basically very little. All right. Did the draft work? Was it worth it? The draft worked. It was successful in the sense that its main purpose was to spur volunteerism. And it, it accomplished that because people would rather collect $300, right? By signing mm -hmm. up and be mm -hmm. and be drafted. Oh, okay. So there's so a, there's it, a differential there, right? So it increased yeah. increased volunteerism, and uh, you know, with all these uh, municipalities floating, you know, millions of dollars in bonds to to pay off the, the commutation fee, very few men were were dragged into the army against their will. Mm -hmm. Was there any international? I don't understand this question. Was there any international equivalent to the New York draft riots? I don't see why there would be unless uh, we're taking part in the uh, war. 1848 so. uh, and 1871, <laughs> right? Oh, but the, the Paris Commune. Yeah, sure, yeah, of course, yeah. of course. Uh, is there a particular reason why the riots followed the victories at Gettysburg and Vicksburg? I, th I think we've discussed that, that, that it was fortuitous. Uh, the theory was that uh, Lee, Lee was supposed to break through the Union line, and then the riots were going to be a fire in the rear mm -hmm. uh, that would help coordinate the attack. But, but mm -hmm. they, the riots were delayed because of the defeat at Gettysburg. That was the theory. I haven't found any hard evidence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How do the New York City draft riots mirror more contemporary political protests, such as the LA race riots, Vietnam War, Iraq War, et cetera? Uh, what do you, I mean, I, I think we raised the question of scale, yeah. which is, you know, and, and I, then I if you, if you do be... a multiplier for population, I mean, the, the disparity is even Yeah, greater. I mean, I, th I think that if you look at the casualty figures in L.A., for example, um, I think 21 people were killed. Mm -hmm. um, a, probably a more comparable riot, uh, or if you want to call it a riot or a pogrom, uh, was Tulsa in 1921. Right. Um, and there may have been more people killed there. We will never know because there, there was so much destruction of property um, and fire that consumed evidence. But mm -hmm. probably Tulsa is the best example. That's a good one. I and think and of. then there was, you know, there were the riots um, uh, leading up to and during World War II as well. I think there is some kind of, I hadn't thought about it until just now, that there is something about when we go to war. Uh, um, that can lead to domestic violence and domestic uprisings against the war or whatever. So, because you see it in the Civil War, you see it again in World War One, and you see it again in World War Two, and then you see it in the Vietnam War. So, and the first the mm. first casualties in the War of eighteen twelve were in the Baltimore uh, Baltimore riot. First, first oh, Americans there killed. You go. See, so there, I'm sure there's some kind of an analogy one could make there. The movie Gangs of New York 
portrays New York City as an incredibly violent city. How accurate was that portrayal? And why did the violence abate? I guess that assumes that it did abate. (laughs) Gentlemen? Well, um, I would say that New York was a very violent place in in the 19th century. Uh, If you look at uh, the course of of the whole century, you'll see that the draft riots were just the worst Mm -hmm. explosion of many. Uh, You know, 1834, there was a week-long anti-abolition riot. 1849, the Astor Place yep. riot, where they, they stormed the, you know, the nest of the aristocracy, uh, you know, kind of a class-based riot. Uh, and they were, you know, these gangs were used by politicians like Fernando Wood as a political arm, and they would use them to intimidate the, the opposition at election time. Uh, so there was always something going on. Um, but I suppose, it, why did it abate? I mean, part of it is the answer to your question about how did New York react to the, to the end of the draft riots, part of the reaction was the elites became very defensive. And they talked about the dangerous classes. And they, they really closed ranks. Mm-hmm. And you know what you see in, in the last quarter of the 19th century is that those troops who were pulled out of the South mm-hmm. are now brought into armories in the, across the North to put down strikes by, by workers. Um, and so. Part of it is a, you know, the heavy hand of, of the militia being used more often. Uh, part of it is that there is some improvement in these abysmal social conditions mm-hmm. of slums through uh, you know, new sanitation laws, tenement laws, health codes. Um, and that all sort of you know, takes us into the progressive era of the early 20th century and you know, more systematic kind of merit-based you know, government. Mm-hmm. jobs and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Did the Confederates experience similar problems relating to drafting soldiers for the Civil War? They actually instituted the draft first. Yeah, before, right? summer of 62. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't think they had, I don't know of any big riots that they had, but they, it was a problem. If, if, and there is they, one, I have a fun fact. Uh, there were union units from every seceded state except South Carolina. So the other 10 states that seceded, mm-hmm. each of those 10 states had at least one unit in the Union Army. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it were, was not, you know, the Moonlight and Magnolia's yeah, Lost yeah, Cause yeah, yeah. papers over a lot of unhappiness yes. and, and dissent yes, within the South. Yeah, and you, you were exempted from the, the Confederate draft if you were a foreman on an estate with more than 20 slaves. Yeah. Okay. So how's that for class That's discrimination? Good. There you go. <laughs> Uh, did the tensions, threats, and or threats that were plaguing New York City during 1861-64 reverberate outside Manhattan in New Jersey, Long Island, or New England? There were smaller um, disturbances um, around New York. There were, um, but I, in most cases, outside, did I think New York City. anything in Brooklyn uh, during, during th- this? There was some in Brooklyn. There was some in New Jersey. There was some on Long Island. Um, there were some farther out in Boston in had Boston. some disturbance, um, and all, all across the north in Vermont, yeah. in the marble quarries, uh, in Pennsylvania, in the, the coal, coal fields. Miners, yeah. mm-hmm. So anywhere where you had a concentration of working people uh, who felt threatened by the draft, and where there were Democratic orators mm-hmm. who would go in and, and rev them up, rile them up. Um, I think the first two uh, draft officials who were killed were in Indiana. 
Uh, there were problems in Chicago. I mean, it, it was a northern phenomenon. It's just that in Manhattan, you had a special condition yeah. of a tiny, so a tiny island with you know, half a million poor people packed into mm -hmm. eight square miles. Yeah. Can you please discuss President Lincoln's response to the riots? Well, Lincoln's uh, response was in part conditioned by these, the two appeals that were coming to him from, from different sides. The, the Union League folks that we just mentioned were, you know, went down to the headquarters of the, of the Union Army in the St. Nicholas Hotel and they telegraphed Lincoln and said, you know, impose martial bring, law. Yeah, bring the troops. And they wanted a reconstruction of New York City, right? Because mm -hmm. they saw New York, New York mm -hmm. City as this den of uh, these corrupt Tammany uh, you know, well. racists, right? <laughs> um, and the, the Tammanyites said, you know, no, we'll, we'll settle this. We'll, we know how to talk mm -hmm. to people. Tweed set up this committee and they, they bailed out the men who couldn't afford the draft. Lincoln also said famously, look, I'm sitting on two volcanoes. Um, I've got a war to fight. Mm -hmm. um, there's a potential conspiracy to disrupt, uh, to start a, a riot in Chicago. Um, and I've got, you know, New York has already exploded. And if I, if I dig deeper, if I have a federal investigation that you want, uh, I'm going to scrape a little loose dirt from the crater and it's going to erupt mm -hmm, again. Mm -hmm. I, you know, those were his kind of words. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty much his response. He, he, he really, you know, it, it's sad that he couldn't do more uh, in the sense it would have been more satisfying, let's say, you know, in a moral sense, if he'd come in and really be able to hold people to account. On the other hand, I think he's he had, a politician. He had, he's an excellent politician. Yeah, but he also had his eye on the long game, which was that he had to win the war, right. and that's what was really going to help African Americans mm -hmm. in the long run. How did public officials react to the riots? Did they condemn them? Well, the the once again, the Republicans blamed the Democrats. Democrats blamed the Republicans. The the Democratic governor, um, Governor Seymour, used it as a, as a pretext to. Um, to, to say to Abraham Lincoln, let's suspend, in New York City, let's suspend the draft for a while because we have these cases and we're challenging the legality of the draft in the courts. Please let's wait until those cases have worked their way through the court system before you do anything about um, bringing the, the draft back online in New York City. Now, of course, he couldn't do that. He couldn't suspend the draft in New York City and continue it everywhere else. So he uh, instantly told Governor Seymour, no. Um, but at the same time, he did shift all those troops into the city and basically put the city under martial law um, just to see what would happen. I think because Tammany and, and uh, speaking of politicians, um, um, uh, cranked up this entire bureaucracy, the whole point of which was to buy New York men's way out of serving, um, between Tammany and all those troops in town, um, uh, they kept the lid on. You know, there was no further riot. Right. right. The troops keep the lid on, and and Tammany um, lowers the temperature yes. of the right. pot. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. exactly. I mean, I, I but Seymour. I mean, the draft riot stuck to Seymour, as I recall. I mean, when he runs for well, president, he he, they, he's he's hammered for a speech yeah. he gave. Uh, yeah, the he, riots. He, from the steps of City Hall, he addressed the rioters as my friends. My friends. Okay. And he was he was a little and, late. And he and got I will there see on that Tuesday. We redress yeah. your grievances <laughs> and. I, I think nationally, wait, they're his friends. <laughs> but, I mean, nationally, though, I think the response to the riots was also conditioned by uh, what happened at Fort Wagner. 
South Carolina mm -hmm. um, just a day after the riots ended on July 18th. Um, many of you have probably seen the movie Glory about the 54th mm -hmm. Massachusetts and these young black soldiers who were martyred uh, in this attack on Fort Wagner. And so the fact that these men had relatives in New York City who were being attacked by mobs mm -hmm. while they were you know, scaling the mm -hmm. wall of this fort and being shot down, the, the combination of these two, two things really, I think, shocked the conscience of the nation. Mm -hmm. And so the riots, if they had any redeeming effect, it was to, to really wake people up and mm -hmm. say, you know, we've got to look at, at blacks differently. Did the riots affect the socioeconomic makeup of New York long term? I think we addressed this. It, yeah. it wasn't the riots so much as, as longer, longer trends I, and reactions to those Yeah, trends. and I think they promoted uh, segregation that hadn't existed before mm -hmm. by driving blacks and their institutions into the periphery, physical periphery of the city. Which at that time was, was what? Well, uh, for example, you know, the black, the colored orphan asylum moved from Lower Fifth Avenue up into Harlem and, you know, eventually even further into Riverdale. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people moved out to Brooklyn. Um, In some so ways, you could say that it's, you know, it's the start of, of a ghettoizing process. Um, blacks had lived um, throughout New York City until now, and now they start withdrawing into their own communities. Enclaves. And that, of course, the, the, most of the white folks in New York are just happy to have them do that, so they you know, reinforce that as time goes on okay. and drive them farther and farther out. We'll have one more question. In the years leading up to the Civil War, was there any outcry against New York's economic ties to the South and therefore slavery? I think the answer is no. I mean, uh, there was from from a, a handful of idealists, yeah, but Horace uh, Greeley and and some. But right. yeah, I, I do think it's um, you have to be careful on overplaying how much Horace Greeley and 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 uh, Henry Ward Beecher and 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 some of the other um, abolitionists in town. Um, they were very influential, obviously, but they were a tiny minority, and I, and I don't think outside of them there was much outcry about New York's association with the South. Okay, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Al. That was great. Good job. Yes, we thank you so much, John Strasbaugh, Barnett Schechter, and Rick Brookheiser. It was a terrific evening. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Please stay for the book signing. The gentleman will be signing on the Central Park West side and our museum store is on the 77th Street side. And we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you very much.